0: If you're trying to prove a murder case without having a body to prove that your victim is actually dead, you'd better make sure that the rest of your evidence is rock solid. The same goes if you're going to try to prove that Jesus really is who he said he was. My guest today has done both. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm going to bring you another story from the world of true crime. And we're gonna see where that intersects with our faith and then join forces to answer what I think is every Christian's calling to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. And we'll talk about a practical way to do that after we've gone through today's case. This is season three, episode 15. And the book that I chose for this week, since Easter's right around the corner, is Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. And yes, it does have a true crime story in it. Our guest today is former atheist and cold case detective turned apologist, speaker, and best-selling author, Jay Warner Wallace. Mr. Wallace has developed a very unique style of evaluating evidence. So in this book, he walks us through his own nobody case of Tammy Hayes, and shows us this really unique investigative technique and then he takes it and applies it to the claim that Jesus is who the bible says he is but let's focus on Tammy's case first Tammy was raised in the foster care system and didn't have any close family contacts all she really had were friends and her husband Steve now Steve was actually a person of interest in her disappearance but the problem was nobody could prove that she hadn't just walked away from her life. But when Jay Warner Wallace got the case, he applied this unique approach of his so that even though no evidence had really been collected, he was still able to determine what the only reasonable assumption of what had happened was. So if Tammy's husband, Steve, was responsible for her disappearance, one of the first things that Jay Warner Wallace wanted to know is, why did it happen when it did? So think about it this way. If her disappearance was like a bomb exploding, what lit the fuse? What happened before? And then what was the fallout? What kind of things did we see people doing afterward? So if you take all that information and diagram it all out, you can start seeing patterns. You can see who was connected to each step in the process. So if we apply that to Tammy's disappearance, let's think about who was connected to the text messages from another woman about, quote, being together soon? It was Steve. Who borrowed a large empty plastic barrel from a friend right when Tammy disappeared? That also was Steve. And who asked another friend if he thought it was possible for a murderer to go to heaven? You're right, that too was Steve. I'm seeing a pattern here, aren't you? Who was unhappy that Tammy was getting ready to announce that she was pregnant? Steve. Who did Tammy call police to say had been threatening to kill her? Steve. And who moved his girlfriend in two weeks after Tammy disappeared? That, too, was Steve. Do you think maybe he knew for sure that she was never going to be coming back? If you're ready to take that next step to become a different kind of PI, a person of impact, I have resources to help you. So go to the show notes, find the link, and you can get resources describing how I took my faith and my interest in true crime as a private investigator and put those together. You'll also find ways that you can learn what type of PI you might be and what kind of work you're best suited for. And then if you decide to really dive in head first, you can get resources that will help you practice what I call soul care so that the darkness of the true crime world won't overwhelm you and you can keep serving those people who have survived the trauma of being affected by crime. They need us so much and you'll be ready. So remember, check out that link in the show notes. Now let's get back to the case of Tammy Hayes. Since Steve seemed to be connected to all of the important information that Detective J. Warner Wallace was uncovering, he knew it was time to go talk to him. But Steve wasn't really interested in chatting about his long-gone wife, Tammy. But he did unintentionally give away a bit of information as he was trying to shoo detectives off of his porch. He told them that he hadn't thought about Tammy in years. You know, that's so much there for being a loving, concerned individual. Or even just someone who might say, oh, my gosh, I'm glad you're looking into this. I've always wondered what happened, too. Steve told the detectives he just figured that Tammy wanted to see the world, which is never how anybody who knew Tammy described her. And then suddenly, just as detectives were getting ready to leave, someone called Steve's cell phone. And when he answered, he told the caller that he'd have to call them back because he was talking to homicide detectives. That is not how Detective Wallace introduced himself and his partner. He said they were there about a missing persons case. At the end of the day, even with no body, no physical evidence, and no eyewitnesses, Steve was convicted of Tammy's murder. J. Warner Wallace had shown that there was simply no other reasonable explanation for the fuse, the explosion, and the fallout of Tammy's disappearance. So what does any of this have to do with Jesus being a person of interest? Well, our guest today says that he can prove that Jesus is who the Bible says he is by using his fuse and fallout technique to evaluate the mark that Jesus left on the world, not by using anything from the New Testament. So let's look at it this way. Who else's birth divides history into a before and after section like Jesus does? No one. Who else fulfills the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah? No one. You'll want to read this fascinating book for yourself to see the evidence for Jesus reflected in all aspects of our culture and other cultures as well, and in every academic discipline. So let's go ahead and check in with today's guest, author J. Warner Wallace. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. I know my audience is going to love your perspectives.
1: Well, I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: I just have to jump in and say that I love the way that your book seamlessly puts together the aspect of really digging in and researching things you need to to solve a crime and then doing the exact same thing with faith. And um, I've always said that These seem like an odd pairing, the faith and the true crime, but really, I think they go together wonderfully well. And I wonder if you agree that as believers, our faith really should call us to care deeply about people who've been victimized.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, look at we are Christians who believe that this entire story is centered upon the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, who not only is God but understands our suffering because he, of all the you know notions of what God is like, has experienced this kind of suffering. So I think that, yeah, there's something unique about Christianity. And you see this, right? You see this in the history of Christian missionaries, the history of Christian uh, hospital workers, care workers, rescue workers. Uh, Even now, the number of volunteers who globally will go out under the Christian banner to help those who are in need is is why because we watched the master do this. You know why did we we were none of we we were the first to be out there, you know, deeply entrenched and our master touched the lepers, okay? So so we knew what this looked like. And you'll see a rich uh, Christian history and tradition of service uh, for those who are in need, both both in terms of like criminal victims and just in terms of health health victims, so you see this a lot in their Christian. So I'm I'm just yeah I agree that there's there's something unique about Christianity which opens the door philosophically to that kind of work.
0: I don't know about you, but a lot of times at church or in some sort of gathering, people will ask me what I do, and when I say that I'm a private investigator, they kind of take a step back a little bit and they look around to see if anybody's watching. They drop their voice and say, "I love true crime." Like somehow yeah, they should yeah. they should maybe be ashamed of that. But, you know, I, I think that the church and small groups, I think we should really dive deeper into these really very seminal to our faith issues like redemption, forgiveness. Wow. Um, I, I talked about vigilantism one time. I mean, there's a lot of hard stuff in this, but it's important stuff.
1: Well, it is. I mean, look, we, we hold a view that says there are transcendent moral truths related to things like forgiveness and redemption. Are these goods or bads in the world? Are these good moral notions or evil moral notions? Uh, our worldview kind of grounds these in the nature of God. So, so we don't believe that God creates these moral values and he could change them, could make these things all evil. No, we believe these are a reflection of his holy nature. So I think that, yeah, I think that part of what we do is we, if we're going to, I think that the entry point of true crime, for example, with uh, the case for Jesus has always been uh, helpful for me because I think most people are like this guilty pleasure of watching true crime. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are now entire networks like Oxygen that in the last two years has switched over to nothing but true crime. Well, why? Because they know that this is incredibly popular and almost everyone knows has some innate understanding, based on their viewing habits, of what detectives do. So if I said to you, well, we can examine uh, Christianity and we can examine the manuscript evidence on the basis of like literary criticism or historical criticism, well, nobody knows what literary critics do. Nobody knows what historians do. But if I said to you, hey, we can look at this like a detective, well, now you're like, okay, I got some basic understanding of that because the most popular shows on TV involve that frame of reference, as opposed to historians and literary criticism. So I just think I've tried to leverage that a little bit to get people interested in things that they wouldn't otherwise be interested in.
0: And it's, of course, to me, because this is my my type of thing, even if it wasn't my occupation, I thought it was fascinating to watch you lay one of your actual cases beside your own investigation into whether you thought that Jesus is who he says he is. And so you really get to satisfy kind of both of those, those curiosities and see how similar a a true, honest, intellectual look at faith is.
1: And this was my journey. I mean, this is exactly—people for years have asked me to share my testimony. I'm not a big believer in sharing testimony personally. I just know because I've got lots of friends who are not Christians who also have a very compelling testimony. To me, untested testimony is really not much much value. Okay, so I, I want to know, is it true first? And then I'll listen to the story. So for me, I needed to know, is Christianity true? It has a good story to tell. And there are some advantages to holding a theistic worldview. Uh, practically speaking, and it does generate a certain amount of inspiration, a certain amount of perseverance. I get all those things that are valuable about Christian faith. But if it's not true, I'm not interested. So I just needed to know is it true? Then we can begin the conversation. And that's a lot of what I tried to do in the first days of studying Christianity and a lot of what I tried to chronicle in these books is that this is the way I became a Christian. Uh, it was just as I describe it. I mean, I was working, I've been working cases my entire career. And some of them are pretty intense, right? Like they just, they suck up all the air in the room. Uh, these, these things are taking you know, up. First of all, when you work in fresh homicides, no one ever gets killed unless it's a holiday, it seems like, right? So every Christmas, every holiday, you're out on some crime scene and it gets old. And at some point you're like, you know, so if you're not dedicated to the process, and that's all I knew. So when it came time to look at Jesus, I didn't know another way in. I certainly would not trust what I felt about Jesus. Because all you, you encounter all kinds of stupid from people who just feel their way into things. Now, that doesn't mean you can't feel your way into the truth, but you might just be stumbling in accidentally because you haven't really examined it to see if it's true. And I just think you want to do both. It's not an either or. It's a both end. So I just knew I needed, before I could like give my heart to this, I needed to know in my head if it was true.
0: And I think that that came through for me anyway, as I was kind of going on the journey with you through Tammy's case, right? You know, it's, and, and I've, I've worked similar cases and it's one thing to look at things and say, wow, it just feels like this is the person or this is how it happened, but you've got to also get there. Like you said, intellectually, you've got to have that proof. You've got to have evidence that can withstand scrutiny. You've got to have things that you can corroborate that don't stand by themselves. And you were able to do that with faith, too.
1: Yeah, and there's an evolution, right, of process in this uh, in terms of working as, a, as an investigator. It, pretty much everyone who works in the field doesn't always see themselves as an investigator. So patrol officers don't often see themselves as detectives with the same kinds of burdens that detectives have. For example, if you're out in the field, sometimes you just feel like the goal is to arrest somebody. Right. I, that there's a robbery that occurred, and you see the car leaving and matches the description. And sure enough, it is the robber. So, my goal is to just uh, put my, put, you know, get that guy in custody. But well, that's an important goal. And it is a first step. But for me, it's not just that. Now, there's another step in this. If we don't have enough evidence that, that he is the guy by interviewing quickly, by looking through the car to find the weapon, all of that stuff, well, then we're not going to be able to hold him beyond that 24 hour, 48 hour period to get the case filed. The goal ought not be just to make an arrest. It's to get the case filed with the district attorney. And if we don't have enough evidence to get past that filing and convict it in front of a jury, then we've still done all of this for nothing. So it's hard to help people in the beginning of a patrol officer to realize that your goal is not to arrest that guy. Your goal is to get a conviction in front of a jury. What are we going to do in this moment to get us through all the steps that are required to get to the, now for me, looking at Christianity, I just I needed to go all the way. I needed to know like what 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 is every layer of this all the way to the end before I can take a first step. Because the goal is not just to know something about Jesus. If that's the case, you know Mormons know something about Jesus, Muslims know something about Jesus. Pretty much every world religion now can say they know something about Jesus. Does not make them Christians. So I just needed to know how far does this go evidentially, and how much trust should I put in it?
0: And as much as I really admired your extremely methodical approach, you also had kind of an artistic bend yeah. to your approach, which fascinated me. So I want to hear more about that.
1: Well, that's my training was. So I, I my dad was a police officer and worked homicides and then became a sergeant. So I was familiar with his cases. But um, I was really more interested in the arts. I would have liked to have been a writer from the beginning, but um, then I was in in art school. I got a bachelor's degree in design and a master's degree in architecture, and I was working as an an architectural firm in Santa Monica when I realized that probably based on the kind of uh, uh, relationship Susie and I have and our hopes and aspirations for having a family, that probably to pursue the arts uh, would have um, derailed some of that for me because I'm such an obsessive. That if you're going to spend a lot of hours on something that for which you're being paid a flat salary, which is a lot, lot of the architectural world, um, that you're probably never going to be home. And um, I know that I'm obsessed about creativity. That's a very obsessive kind of discipline. Uh, the thing about good thing about police work is when the shift's over, the shift's over. Um, so that was helpful, and I knew that it was a noble profession. My dad had done it for years, and he had raised a second family, and he was never you never had any money, but it was it was consistent work. Right? It doesn't rise and fall on the real estate market. It did not industry Yeah, whether you, whether you had a client or not, you know so, so th- there were some things about it that I thought were, were safer. And that was the selfish reason why I got involved in ar- in uh, law enforcement to begin with. And right away, because I had a background in arts, um, you know I got called out to every homicide, every officer involved shooting, where they needed a drawing, where they needed to map out that crime scene. So I ended up doing a lot of charting. I built models for homicides, uh, before I ever investigated a homicide as the IO, as the investigating officer, I was building the models and doing the drawings they would go to court with because that was the stuff that I was, you know, I was gifted at, but that helped me. Cause it put me in front of a lot of homicide detectives years before I ever worked homicides and they all knew me. And, uh, my dad was there early. So I was Wallace's kid who could do all the drawings, you know? And so they always would uh, bring me into their confidence. I was at a lot of death scenes, That uh, listening and kind of being part of the thinking on the scene, well before I was ever in charge of the scene, and that was just kind of a helpful step for me.
0: I can't even draw stick people, but I will say that reading about how you used your art has made me rethink how I'm going to do some of the things that I do. So, bet you didn't know that that this was also a little bit of a primer for PIs. This book that you have.
1: Well, and think about it. I mean, a lot of what we end up doing is at some point you're going to take a case that you've developed and have to communicate that case to somebody. And the communication process every generation that we are in is more and more visual. Why? Because we've been trained by this glowing rectangle, the phones that are in our hands. They continue to feed us information. So for now, you probably realize that used to be the largest search engine in the world was Google. I think YouTube has passed that pretty quickly. And we are used to, we wanna see it. We wanna see this thing visually. And when you're talking about something for which I have no video, because I've had a video, it would be solved a long time ago. I have to kind of help the in, in, form analogies, ways of thinking. So I, like, for example, we use this fuse and fallout idea. in the, in the This is simple timelining of what happens before a murder and what happens after a murder. I could say it that way. But when you talk about it as a fuse that's burning up to the explosion of a bomb and then all the shrapnel and debris that's in the fallout, people see it differently. They, they oh, I get that. And now I can just put those pieces in the diagram from either the fuse or it's a part of the fallout. And everyone says, oh, there's no doubt that he's the bomb. He's the one who did this. And so what we're trying to do is to find a way to create, to, to, to visualize or to create visual analogies. Look, it's word pictures. This is the parables of Jesus. He does this all the time. You know, I can tell you there's a theological principle about works and the relationship to faith, or I could tell you a story about a vineyard, and here we go. And this is the difference, right? So what we're doing here is the same kind of thing. We're kind of using, um, I always talk about parables as the first century PowerPoint.
0: Right? <laughs> it's like, you know,
1: how do we how do we make this visual so you can understand it in the context of the culture? Same kind of thing here. We're trying to find a way to make this visual in the context of the culture.
0: Which I think is tremendous because how how you relate that back to the way Jesus taught, because I think a lot of us look at parables and we're like, Okay, these are confusing. Why did he make them confusing? But it, they're thought exercises as well. He wants right. well, they, us to own it.
1: Yeah, and they're provocative, right? They provoke a certain response. And it is true also. Like in, there's some, certain things that you will say as a, as a believer that non believers will just, it is that like they don't catch it. And, and, it's, and it's, so and I think that's fair that we would have a certain way of looking at the world that would be specific to our worldview. And Jesus Jesus often had uh, audiences that didn't get it. And you see how many times the disciples didn't get it. I'm always encouraged by that, that that it's provoking from them a manner of critical thinking. Interestingly, if you compare the disciples in the book of Acts with the disciples in the Gospels, you'll swear you have completely different sets of people. Like Peter in Pentecost does not sound like anything else Peter does prior to Pentecost. What's happening here? No, it's 40 days with Jesus in Acts 1, I'm sure. It's a large part of it. It's also like they have the huge aha moment of the resurrection that changes and solidifies. Suddenly, all that, if I look back and recall the parables, after this whole thing's over, there's a certain amount of clarity. So I think that Jesus also seed plants ideas early on in his teaching as
0: well. And if this idea intrigues you, you've got to get this book. It really is very fascinating. I'm already ready to read it again because, you know, I know there will be things that I absorb differently the second time that I see them. And when you were talking about that whole worldview, you know, the different ways we have of perceiving things around us, depending on our faith, our job, the way we were raised, I want to ask you a question that I get asked a lot. You know, as a believer, does it bother you to look at crime scene photos, look at autopsy photos? And for you, to be at an actual live crime scene. Mine is always after the fact, but you're right there, mm-hmm. right when it's happened. How, how do you deal with the dark, dark things that we see in our faith?
1: Oh, I, I never have a good answer for this. Um, so, you know, you get to go to a lot of live scenes. And uh, if you're assigned to a case in Los Angeles County as the IO, as the investigating officer, I'll have to be present at the autopsies. Uh, Because they're not going to testify at the prelim. I'm going to have to testify for the coroner at the prelim, which means I got to be there to see what the coroner sees so I can testify for him. So I've been to tons of autopsies. And I think, so here's my lame answer. I don't have a good answer. Um, My lame answer is that I think that there is, this is not something that I learned by doing. This is something you can either do or you can't do. And I have seen people who can't do it. And we've had some horrific scenes, and people will show up and go, I, I can't do this. And I actually have no, I, I'll be honest, I, I wish I could be more patient, but I kind of feel like we're in this unusual special role, that if we got to this point in your career and you're now at a death scene as an investigator and you can't do it, I want to slap you. <laughs> so I hate to say that, right? But I'm like, hey, we have a duty now. This is a duty. Um, and I, and I, I, you just have to do it. And it's, it, I think the, your Christian worldview that will help. But I did this for a lot of years before I had a Christian worldview. And I just think, you know, I remember when I was drawing these these illustrations, I mean, some of these were just, I didn't want to talk about them. They're just so horrific. There's almost like, it's almost like dark comedy. Like, no way. That really happened? Yeah, that really happened. And, and you just have to move people around because it turns out that most of the time that you, you this, this dude died and rolled over on something valuable. So I got to stick around and move the guy around so I can get to what's valuable. And if you aren't somebody who's comfortable touching dead, bloody people and moving them around, then this job isn't for you um, because it's going to start to mess with your head. And it just never, never did for me. I, and I just feel like it's not a gift. It's nothing special to brag about. It's just, I think if you're going to, so for example, if you said, well, um, I'm a psychologist and I got to listen to people's problems all day. Well, if that's not something you're wired to do. You can't do that job, right? Because after a couple of years, you're going to have all kinds of problems that your people came in with that you just rubbed off on you. I think what happens is you get in a place where you're like, oh, I can do this. Um, i give you an example of this, coroners. Look, I coroners, I've got a really weird, these are people with medical degrees. They went to the same process that people who are, you know, working as doctors do to do what? To work in the county. Just moving dead people around. I mean, it's like who does that? Why would you do that? Why would you pay for a medical uh, education to get county pay? You're cutting up dead people every day, but it has to be done. It's critical to what we do. And and if you aren't the kind of person who can do that and just and and not detach yourself and compartmentalize that, if you can't do that, you're going to struggle with this. Now, as a Christian, I'll tell you what does help: is that you are. I don't get upset about broken eggshells, and every one of these murder scenes is just a broken eggshell scene. This, this, these, we are soulish creatures. We are bodies and souls united. But at the point of death, your soul is no longer there. You're just the eggshell. The egg is already gone. So, can you clean up eggshells? I can, because you know I'm not gonna uh, I'm not gonna fuss about the fact that the eggs are, are. I mean, the eggs are gone. They were actually recovered intact. Okay, they're gone. All you have are the eggshells. And every one of these scenes are just bodies, bodies. And I believe that we are soulish creatures. And when you work a child murder, I had to do a bunch of those. Um, I, you know, you have to think theologically. Do I have good reason to believe that this child is in the presence of God right now? If I believe that is true, this is just an eggshell scene. And I can, I can work that.
0: And kind of the uh, opposite side of the same coin. How hard is it when you identify your perpetrator and this person turns out to be a professing Christian?
1: Oh, I had that happen so many times. Oh, my gosh. That's probably— And I think
0: that shocks people. We think that, oh, my goodness, Christians, we we don't do bad, wrong things.
1: Yeah, but we do the, all yeah, the time. Some, absolutely. Some of these are, are committing the crime after they became Christians. Some of these, though, uh, except for cold cases, they became Christians in the years following the murder. And some of that, I think, is generated by the fact that they're trying to struggle with their culpability— in the case and and they've struggled with it and they needed to confess it to somebody they don't they're too selfish to confess it to a uh, to somebody who's real i, I mean not to, to a uh, who's physical because if they confess to the physical person that might put them in jail so they want to confess either in prayer or in some way and feel good about it so they can move on with their lives i've seen that a number of times um i had a case one time where you know he came in after killing this girl 25 years earlier every day he walked into the trial with a bible and he sat that Bible on his table every day. Now, it might just be that he really felt comfort in Scripture, that he is a, now a Christian. But, you know, he never, ever, ever through that process told the truth about it. And I always think that we're a truly repentant heart and understands that the consequences cannot dictate how you talk about it. You have to be willing to be repentant in every moment, which means you're going to have to be honest in every moment. And so I think there's a part of me that says, okay, I don't, I'm not buying the Bible on the counter. And I always think strategically it's not a good idea, right? Because if you're going to bring that Bible in and the, whoever in your jury is not a Christian, they think, what, the this, this hypocrite. And everyone who is a Christian is like, dang it, don't bring that Bible in here and, and associate us with you. Like, it right. doesn't help you with anyone on the jury panel, okay? So so I would just say, isn't that my advice to anyone listening to this? If you're arrested and you uh, want to bring your Bible, don't, don't do it. It doesn't help. But Maybe you should be a, a jury consultant. Well, I, a are, lot of what you uh, do. Working for the defense, rather. Yeah. Telling well, this, what
0: juries will take and what they will reject.
1: Well, and you know this is true because you've done some of this, that, that this is a lot of what I do is um, assessing jurors, right? We all do that as a team. Um, we think about, like, we have a panel of jurors. We put the dire questionnaire out there. We read the questionnaire. We go through it We can before we start selecting the jury. And we're just trying to figure out, you know, who possesses a bias they can't put down. Because everyone's got some kind of thing they, they have got in their head. We get it. But some people are better at, at shelving that than others. And we're just trying to figure out, can you shelf your bias? Because if you can't, then there's going to be a problem for us. So, so yeah, I think a lot of what you do in this situation is you're trying to assess people to see if they're willing to be um, fair and um, impartial.
0: Let's, let's get a little more lighthearted for a moment. <laughs> We've gone through some pretty okay. heavy stuff. Tell me something about yourself that most people wouldn't know.
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I'll put you on the spot here. That wouldn't know. Um, Well, I mean, I think people mostly know that I am interested in the arts and in music, and that's something that most cops don't, you don't think of that as being something that you would necessarily associate with. I'm not somebody who's like a big gun nut or a big hunter or fisher. A lot of people are fishermen. They like to fish and hunt. They just are fond of guns uh, because this is what we have to constantly, I think I'm proficient, but i don't think it's not my hobby you know it's not like the thing that i i'm not a collector um my dad was a collector um but that's just not my interest i came up in the arts you know i've got a collection of guitars here that i have but i don't have a collection of guns so so i think that's part of probably the difference for me as i'm trying i I ended up blending both of those it's really hard to scratch a creative itch in a business like ours Um, there's not a lot. So I've tried to be very creative about how I approach these cases because I'm just trying to scratch that itch.
0: Well, and of course, you've listened to some of my podcast episodes, and my regular listeners out there know that I'm I'm gonna go this direction. What can just your average person do? You don't need a lot of training, you don't need special skills, just something simple you can do, grassroots, community-based kind of thing, when you are very interested in this true crime genre and you want to help victims
1: well the first thing you can do is and i'm just going to say this because i think it's the most obvious is that you can't help a victim if you are a victim and so part of what happens in communities is that we have to be so situationally aware that we see that that, most of us get a sense like if you've got kids and they're dating the wrong person you can like i can see this thing before it comes i can kind of get a sense where this is going then you'd like to be able to tell your kids, hey, you know what, I know this is going to sound like maybe stupid or presumptuous on my part, but I kind of have a sense where this is going. And um, I kind of been down that road. Uh, but oftentimes we don't, don't apply that same way of thinking to our everyday experiences in the community, right? Like you can kind of see where I, am now maybe I'm too sensitive to this, right? Because I'm looking at dominoes that fall a certain way. And I'm always assuming that, that you know, I, the worst case, I'm always a worst case scenario guy. But that keeps you alive and it keeps you, uh, keeps you alive in the, in the field. Uh, one of the things I, you know, most cops have to do is we have to kind of walk into any scenario and imagine in this scenario, where is it that I'm probably going to die? Where is it? What's going to get me killed here? Imagine a worst case scenario. What if that guy does this? What if this happens over here? What if that's actually this, what's the worst that could happen? And then I'm positioning myself and trying to behave in such a way to mitigate the worst case scenarios. Now that's not a healthy way to live. But there are times when you can kind of see uh, a situation is going to be in a certain, it's about situational awareness. Most of the self-defense classes you might take, for example, are just about you being aware that you're in a situation that's dangerous. And if you just don't put yourself in that situation, you won't have to learn self-defense. Don't walk to that car at night. Don't walk, don't, don't be uh, oblivious to your surroundings. So now how do you help others do that? Well, a lot of this is to, to kind of help people when you see that they're walking themselves into a dangerous situation. If you've got a relationship with them, it's your job to say, hey, don't walk in the street. Don't put your foot in traffic. But We don't often do that. We kind of sometimes are like, you know, if it's our neighbor, like, yeah, it's none of my business. It's none of my, so we don't get involved this way. We don't even offer advice. Even though we might have some personal experience to can say, you know, I did that once 20 years ago and this is how bad it turned out. We just kind of eat it and allow it to happen to somebody else. So I think a lot of it I would say to people is, If you're situationally aware, help others to be situationally aware, so there's less victims to start with. You know, that's a large part of it. And then the other part of it, of course, is that once, like, why are we doing this, right? As a Christ follower, I just simply want to follow the model. I'm a Christ follower. I'm just following in his footsteps. If you're a Christian, at least know where Jesus would walk. You can't follow in his footsteps if you don't know how he would walk to begin with. So I think part of the problem for us as Christians is that we aren't even biblically literate enough to understand the nature of Jesus to be able to reflect it to the world around us. So I, you know it's as crazy as that sounds it's probably be wise if you want to love like Jesus to know something about Jesus.
0: I think that's so obvious and yet so overlooked. Yeah. So many times. So great advice. Thank you for that. And I want to know if you have any upcoming projects. That you're really excited about that you can share with us?
1: Well, I have another book I'm going to write for Zondervan Publishing, but it turns out I didn't realize that next year is the 10th anniversary of Cold Case Christianity. So we're going to be launching a 10th anniversary edition of that book. So I'm now going through it and just kind of looking at it from 10 years downfield. You know, that was my first book. Even when I wrote it, I, I. Really would have wanted to write it a certain, a certain stylistically. That um, a lot of that got the editor, and I just didn't feel like you know, who am I? My first book. Listening to the, listen to the editor. Now I've got the freedom to go back and say, hey, you know what? I'd rather voice this sentence slightly differently, and they'll actually say, oh, okay, this has been, yeah, sure. Cause I'm now eight books in. So I think that's what I'm going to do is go back, updating it, revising it. And here's, what's really good for me is I get to illustrate it in a way that's much more robust than it was originally illustrated. Cause I think when I first started, people were like, you want to what they didn't. Now they've seen there's 400 illustrations in person of interest. There's maybe 30 in cold case. So I get a chance to go back and re-illustrate it. So that's, that's part of the project. And so that's what, that's the most depressing thing I'll be doing in the next 12 months.
0: Awesome. Well, if you love our conversation today, you will love the rest of his work. So make sure you go to the show notes. There will be links there to podcast, his website, all kinds of wonderful things where you can get more of J. Warren Wallace's works. Thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you. And I know lots of people will be listening to your podcast going forward. So I'm glad to be in the queue.
0: Oh, well, thank you. The Bible verses that I want to look at real quickly today are from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. And I'm going to read from the NLT, the New Living Translation. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. So here in chapter five, the last chapter in this book, Paul is continuing to speak about the day of the Lord and how to be living in anticipation of Christ's return. And in these two verses, he reminds us that we are not to reject prophecies or not to reject things that people tell us about God, but we are to test them. Every good investigator takes information they're given and then compares it to things they know to be true. That way you can evaluate whether this information you've been given is true or not. We have to do the same thing when someone claims to be speaking for God. Compare what they say to Scripture, and if it disagrees, then we aren't being told the truth. But if it does agree, then we hold on to it, like Paul said, because it's good. Now, last week we talked about other missing persons cases, And how important it is to share that person's information so people can bring forward any kind of knowledge that they might have about where that person might be or what might have happened to them. And I ask you to go find a case in your community that you could share. So this week, let's go one step deeper. If there's a Facebook page about that person's disappearance, join it. Leave an encouraging comment to the family so that they know their loved one is not forgotten and that you've shared the case, hoping that you might help bring the truth about what happened to light. You cannot believe how much that means to these families. But please be sensitive about the words that you're gonna choose because even if the disappearance was a long time ago, that pain is still fresh for them. So be kind, be loving, be positive and you will really make a difference in their lives. As always, be sure you check out the show notes. You'll be able to find a link to buy the book that we talked about this week. You'll be able to find places online where you can find more of J. Warner Wallace's work and his content and everything. And you'll find that link to new resources that I've released to help you on your journey to become a different kind of PI, a person of impact. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex. Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.